Thank you for joining us today. I'm Scott Schiff with the Atlas Society, introducing our senior scholars, Richard Salzman and founder David Kelly, discussing why hypocrisy is not an argument. Uh, we'll let them get the conversation started. And while they're offering their thoughts, you know, just feel free to raise your hands with questions. We'll bring you up to the stage to ask uh, once they're done uh, with their opening discussion. And uh, I encourage everyone to share the room. So with that, I'll let you two get into it. All right. Um, I will uh, I will start uh, just by asking Richard a question here. Um, you know, this term whataboutism, uh, which is uh, we're going to be using a lot tonight, uh, it's actually one I wasn't um, very aware of. I, but once I got the meaning of it, I understood completely because it um, involves logic. Uh, that I know pretty well. So, but Richard, uh, can you give us a little of the background uh, about what this means? Um, we'll get into how it relates to hypocrisy, you know, in good time. But um, where did what is whataboutism? Very good, David. Thank you uh, for that. And and just so everyone knows, the structure we're going to do tonight. We're basically, what is it? What is this whataboutism, and why does it relate to hypocrisy? Then David and I are going to try to discuss why we think it's prevalent. We're going to give some examples too to try to concretize it, and then we'll finish up with something you know something deeper. Like, is there some deeper philosophic reason? Here's David's real contribution here, uh, as well as the logical. David has written a textbook, five editions on logic, so he knows this very well. But we thought we'd end with you know some suggestions as why philosophically this might be widespread. But we first have to suggest why it's widespread then i think we'll stop at 30 or 40 minutes david right and leave it for the rest yeah well i um i i think notice this most in politics but it, it amounts to something like you see two people debating and uh, one of them makes a claim and uh, the other one instead of treating the claim directly looks for an inconsistency in the person's argument like well you advocated a today but you last uh, election advocated non-A. So it points out an inconsistency in the person's argument. And the and the the, the principle seems to be not something we would ne necessarily disagree with because we don't want inconsistency, but rather it doesn't go far enough. It never does answer the fundamental question of, well, what are we actually debating here? It isn't enough to suggest that I'm that I'm either inconsistent in my argument. The point is my current argument is it legitimate or not? What is the evidence for or against it? So uh, I think it comes up a lot in uh, po political debate, but you and David and I have worked out some many uh, personal examples as well. But that's the basic issue that, that people aren't directly addressing the issue at hand. And they're either you know, trying to escape uh, getting caught in a, a bad argument or they're just deflecting, uh, but we'll leave that for why it's prevalent. But um, that's the basic idea. And then what about ism? It's interesting that David found the item this first came up in the 70s. People were using it to explain what the Soviets used to do. You would you would complain that the Soviets had an illiberal system, that they had slave labor camps and and they'd say, well, you guys had Jim Crow and you guys has racism and you guys had slavery. So so notice the, the issue was not is slavery good or bad, but, you know, gotcha, so to speak, gotcha. You know, you, you can't. <laughs> You don't have an argument against me because you're guilty of the same thing. So uh, I think you, there you get the idea. What about ism we found is uh, 
more recent, but uh, David knows the Latin term. Is it is it two coke, David? Is that how you pronounce it? T U. Uh, uh, Q U O yeah Q U O Q U E. It's a part of ad hominem. Uh, it's part of the ad hominem argument, right? You're not attacking and addressing the argument directly. You're saying something about the person. In this case, you're not really smearing them. You're just saying, hey, you're an inconsistent person. Therefore, your argument doesn't hold. So that's just as an opening. We can use examples soon. But what do you think, David? Yeah, that's um, that's the essence of it. Um, to quote way, um, actually, the spelling is T-U. Yeah. And then the second word is Q-U-E. Uh, O Q U um, E E yeah. Q U E yeah and it it what it's it the Latin just means you're another or you too um, yeah. it's very simple and but it let me set a broader logical context it's uh, a form of that homonym which is a fallacy of in an argument you attack the person rather than the argument that person has offered and. Uh, the Tukokwe is a special form of it because you're attack you are attacking the person as inconsistent. Um, but it it's that inconsistency that it makes this a separate subcategory of that homonym. And I mean think of it, think of the logical structure here. Person A, um, to use Richard's uh, uh, format, pictured A, the person A has made some claim. Uh, for example, uh, in the Soviet case he mentioned, um, the Soviets, uh, an American says, the Soviets are uh, violating human rights all over the place. They have um, the Google Ag, they have uh, some slave labor hidden behind uh, the uh, Iron Curtain. And uh, and the Soviets come back by saying, yeah, well, you had, uh, you, you had slaves too. Um, the Chinese are now making this argument as well. Uh, when people say, look, look at all the uh, Muslim uh, Uyghurs that you have in prison um, and they, you know, wh whether it's Russia or, commun or or China, they're saying they're trying to displace the argument. So the uh, structure is person A makes a statement, uh, a claim, uh, hopefully backed by some argument. And in the case of the Soviets, it would be there's abundant evidence that they are guilty of, you know, of, of uh, violating human rights. And person B, in this case, the Soviets, doesn't address the argument. Um, it doesn't address the, the argument that um, we're making against the Soviet Union, and it doesn't address the uh, truth or falsity of the claim or the propriety of slavery in the first place. All it does is say, well, you're, you've done bad stuff too, so boo on you, um, which is, both irrelevant to the argument that person A has made, but also it uh, it distracts from the argument. It it doesn't. Um, it just is it's, in that respect. Is you could see it as another logical fallacy of red herring that is addressing an issue that is not the one under discussion. Uh, so it is a fallacy. Um, although will it 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 uh, it turns on a natural, normal human good desire for consistency in our own thoughts and in those of others. It's just a kind of logical shortcut to that at best, and often is not even that. It's just uh, a debating technique. 
Yeah, let me, uh, from David's uh, Art of Reasoning, 1988. I'm just reading a couple of excerpts here. Uh, Counter accusations of inconsistency may well be true and they may help clarify the issue. In the end, however, you cannot establish your position merely by showing that your opponents are inconsistent. That's their problem. Your problem is to find some actual evidence to support your view. I love that. Then from the 1998 uh, edition, this is uh, on to quote, it's a species of the fallacy of ad hominem. The fact that someone else is guilty of an accusation doesn't prove that you're innocent. It may be unseemly for the pot to call the kettle black, but the kettle is black nonetheless, unquote. That's, that's terrific. And uh, David, I know you noticed uh, in the last edition, the 2021 edition, in quote, in politics, um, this approach is often used, um, citing inconsistency between the speaker's position and positions he had taken previously. Democrats and Republicans alike do this. But again, the fact that someone took a different position in the past is not a re refutation of his current position, unquote. So pe people today, the, the language will be something like, hey, he's a flip-flopper, right? So someone is to be accused of flip. You used to believe X and now you believe anti-X and you're just an opportunist. It's, again, it doesn't address the issue address, uh, directly. Maybe some examples, David, might concretize. I think the most recent one I found my body, my choice would be, you know, a woman typically called a liberal on abortion. And notice during the COVID controversy, the conservatives would say, well, you're forcing a vax on me. The vax mandates my body, my choice. And, and so, but they both add, they, they both raise the issue to each other, but one is advocating the vax and the other one is advocating bans on abortion. And again, it, it, it shows the inconsistency of each, but it doesn't get to the root issue of should either of these things be mandated by the government or not. So we're kind of, David, we're kind of encouraging the idea of one, don't commit this fallacy yourself and be able to detect it in others coming at you. Right. And then also the next step is get to the issue. That's really the, the, the lesson, right? Get to the, what you think the fundamental issue is. And that could be a good thing pointing out to a, to a sparring partner that, well, what is the deeper issue? What's your actual view on the deeper issue? Yeah, the, um, when, you, when you're the, the victim of a two quokeway argument, um, you know, the, the reason that they work and that they're so prevalent, and we'll get to the prevalence um, shortly, but um, the reason, one of the reasons they're so prevalent is that it, it's a conversation stopper. It's an argument stopper. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. accused you of inconsistency. And so what are you going to do? I'm putting the yeah. burden back on you right. to uh, defend not only the argument that you may have made in the first place, but your entire outlook. Um, and uh, and so I'm making an accusation, accusation against you. You are not answering that. You're just deflecting the issue by turning yep. it back on me and putting me in a position where, oh shit, yep. I have to answer this now. Yeah. And so one, we we'll talk more about proper responses later, and and I want to, uh, you know, I, I know some people have questions about that, so we'll cover it partly in the Q and A. But the thing, the proper thing to do is to say that's irrelevant. That's mm. an ad hominem argument. You got anything better in your in your quiver? <laughs> yeah, um, and just not you know fall victim to it. Um, but 
but it's very hard to resist in the heat of argument, especially the kind of you know, short-term um, arguments that take place in political debates and yeah. uh, talking head shows and so forth. Yeah, so one example, David, you use, I notice uh, a few more than a few times in your editions, doctor to patient, you should stop smoking. Patient to doctor. How can you tell me that when you smoke yourself? <laughs> yeah. So the issue here is, I, I think of it as what, I think of these as what's left unaddressed. And I'm thinking here, what's left unaddressed here is whether smoking is good or bad for your health. Right. And the idea that that the doctor doesn't take his own advice might make him a hypocrite, but it doesn't mean the advice is wrong. Right. Is that the way to analyze it? That's the assessment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's always a substantive issue at play and which is being evaded. Yeah. That's so exactly. now, now here, here's a case. How about someone like Sally, who's known as a pathological liar? Sally says to Sam, um, you just told a white lie. And Sam's like, look who's talking. So the whole the whole look who's talking thing is kind of that right here unaddressed is whether lying, well, in any degree is proper or not. So the look who's talking one is uh, is kind of vernacular for this, right? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, you know, another one that I I like uh, you you alluded to it uh, is from my book that you know. Um, when a Democrat is in the office, Republicans will say, oh, my God, you're expanding presidential powers, hmm. the executive branch. That's really irresponsible. Yeah. And the Demo <clears throat> Democrat comes back and says, yeah, well, when your guy was in office, uh, <laughs> when you had a Republican president, you you had no problem with that. Right. Yeah, right. So, yeah. um, again, the issue, the real issue here is what should be the proper scope of the executive branch in our in our government system and the way, you know, the proper evidence for that is the Constitution and Supreme Court decisions, et cetera. Yeah. But none of that gets uh, all that gets washed aside in that. Um, I, I keep thinking of it as talking heads debates. Um, yeah. I remember in the 80s when I was uh, advocating Reaganomics uh, and in the beginning, not in the end, but in the beginning, the Reagan program did generate budget deficits. So the, the Keynesians who hated the fact that Reaganomics and supply side economics came along would, would denounce the deficit spending. Uh, Krugman and others said that this deficit spending is reckless, is bad for the economy. And too many supply siders would come back and say, hey, you Keynesians, you've been advocating deficits for uh, decades. And you used to claim they stimulated the economy. Th that sounds like the same. That sounds like what about isn't because the, the underlying unaddressed issue would be something like, well, is deficit spending proper or not? You know, and what, what effect has it on the economy? Not, uh, you know, or is this a Keynesian episode or a supply side episode? So they would do that to each other, I remember. And it felt unconvincing because it wasn't it didn't go deep enough. You know, exactly. And I, one more example uh, that may <laughs> resonate in particular uh, with this audience. Uh, Ayn Rand uh, wrote to the effect the welfare state is immoral and ought to be abolished. That was certainly her view. Huh. And uh, there's a, a little cottage industry of critics who say, um, but you took social security payments. <laughs> and after yeah. all, don't you walk on public sidewalks? Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. I love that one. 
And, uh, you know, that, with your analysis here, what's unaddressed here is whether the welfare state is un- immoral or not, whether it's a proper function of government or not. And that is just completely yep. lost in the um, uh, acrimonious uh, exchange. Actually, it's not an acrimonious. It was all after Rand's death when they yeah these uh, accusations kept arising. Yeah, and now if people like uh, here's another one. If, if people like uh, John Kerry or Al Gore, they'll say uh, we have to solve global warming by I don't know reducing our carbon footprint. So instead of addressing that, the critics will say, "Hey, you just took a jet, a private jet." to the environmental summit, you hypocrite. It's, uh, that sounds like the same approach too, with the, where the unaddressed would be, well, is global warming actually a problem or not? You know, and yeah. is, is lessening the carbon footprint a solution or not? It's, it, Al Gore might be right, but he's not wrong because he took the jet. I mean, he could say, I'm taking the jet because I need to get my message out. But is that close to this, David, or is that not, is that a, an example. No, that's a that's that's a great example. Um, it isn't a clear example of a two quark way argument or whataboutism. Um, actually, I the uh, you come up with that example, but I it set off a memory that um, there was a cartoon maybe 10, 15 years ago with uh, uh, just a picture of Al Gore's very large southern plantation type house in Tennessee. Yeah. And a huge black footprint. <laughs> that was his footprint. Uh-huh. Um, and that, yeah. just that cartoon, it didn't yeah. have to say anything. It was a two quark way argument. Yeah. Hey, you're not, you're not acting by your own standards. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but now let's, let's talk about why, um, why is it so prevalent? Do you think? Yeah. What do you think? I think, um, well, I, partly I think it ha- when it happens in politics and also in heated personal exchanges, um, hmm. arguments, you know, marital arguments or arguments between lovers or good friends, hmm. um, it, it's happening in the heat of argument and where it's very easy to slip from, I want to discover the truth to, I want to win this goddamn argument hmm. and I'm going to put you down. Mm. So, um, you know, and, and that's a that's a form of short short run thinking. It's very concrete bound. Um, I'm not trying to analyze the underlying issue, the unaddressed issue. I'm not mm. may may not even be aware of it. I just I've been attacked by you, and I'm going to get you. <laughs> um, and here's the way to do it. And it you know, it is so common um, that. And, you know, it's so easy. I, I mean, you know, I mentioned to you when we were uh, working this uh, this clubhouse out, Richard, uh, you know, I sometimes I found myself tempted to do that. Um, yeah, me too. You know, the Kantians, oh, God, the Kantians, well, Kant was this uh, really weird guy, a northern German, uh, really, you know, screwed up. Um, well, no, it's not relevant. His theories are either true or false. And, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I I gave you a, a kind of highfalutin philosophical example, but it it happens in uh, it, I've had it happen in personal situations too, um, and 
you know, because no one likes to be accused of inconsistency. And I think that's a good thing. That is a good thing. That is a good thing, isn't it? So that part of it. Yeah. So Um, it's tapping into something we care about, even though logically it is not relevant to this, to whatever is the issue at hand. And it mm-hmm. leads us to ignore the underlying issue. That's that's mm-hmm. why it's fallacious. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting the way you put this because emotions seem to be part of it. Uh, heat of the moment, as you say, going after the person. Because because to Kokwe, you said it's itself in your books are part of ad hominem. So you're attacking that you are either attacking the person or defending yourself. You know, it's like the boxer in the ring. He's doing the rope-a-dope. He's not, he's got his hands up. He's, he knows he's being attacked. He's not really fighting back. He's just, uh, or fighting the wrong thing. He's not got the right strategy. But that's interesting because that hominin is, ta- is attacking the man, not the argument. Um, I, I wonder, David, whether you think also this is more prevalent, I think, this is my theory, it seems more prevalent in, what would I call it today? These very short-term um, talking head shows where the attention spans are very limited. You have, you know, 13 seconds to make your point. It's not like it's a, an acad- academic conference where there's, you know, long answers and deliberations. I mean, I, you and I know it's not that it doesn't go on there, but is that part of this that we're simply observing it in, highly charged, highly emotional, you know, the fast talking debaters we see today. I don't know if that's a fundamental reason why it's more prevalent, but I wonder that's where we see it most. Well, I, that's my experience. Um, you know, anecdotally, I don't have, um, numerical evidence, uh, but it, um, that is a, that seems to me a context that is ripe for the Mm -hmm. use of this fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, w- I would add here, we're, we're talking specifically about whataboutism or to quote but as a form of ad hominem, um, mm. there are other forms of ad hominem, and those two are pretty prevalent. Uh, for example, how many times have we seen, um, you know, someone on uh, environmental or industrial policy, quote unquote, uh, issues? Someone on the right, a free market person, saying, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And the comeback is, well, you're funded by Exxon, or mm. you get contributions from this company. They've got a vested interest. So that, and they're, what you say, you're just a mouthpiece for money. So mm-hmm. we can't mm-hmm. trust that. We, yep. And it doesn't, that's another way of evading an argument. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty common. I've seen, seen quite a bit. Um, but the two who, Hawkeway, yeah, um, it is it is very short run. I think that's our first uh, level of analysis that it 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 uh, uh, and tends to happen in situations that limit the amount of time you have to say or the amount of words you can use, like on Twitter, um, or in personal yeah. examples um, of you know people who are close engaged yeah. in some argument. Like um, you know, an example would be. Uh, uh, a, a guy, uh, one spouse says to the other, it's outrageous that you cheated on me. And the mm. sp- other spouse comes back, well, you cheated on me the first year we were married. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You know, yeah. 
you know, that's the issue here is when, is fidelity in sexual fidelity in, in marriage. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, and maybe I, maybe the more the more intimate and the personal the relationship, and this could be true in a political debate too. You know, your opponent inside out. You know all the um, inconsistencies over the years. You know, it's not like this is not a total stranger to you. So, um, you know, oppo research in politics. Hey, you flip flopped on that view. Part of it is an intimate knowledge of the other person's positions. And if people, this is a deeper philosophic thing we'll get into, but but if people are more concrete bound today, uh, less principled, more short run in their thinking, um, in the background, there's this value still or virtue that people think that integrity and consistency and logical coherence is good but they don't practice it they're they're unprincipled and um so they're committing the fallacy um we talked earlier david i wanted to ask you about this too the and because it's epistemology maybe we maybe we shift into philosophy more that sometimes you'll hear someone say your view is incoherent so it's an interesting phrase because instead of just saying it's fallacious or it's wrong or it doesn't tie to reality, isn't there a, if I recall, isn't there a distinction in epistemology? There's something called the correspondence theory of truth and the other one called coherence theory of truth. And the first one's supposed to be, do your ideas connect and tie to reality? And the second one focuses more on the consistency between ideas. You know, the, right. the quote, logical, regard, I wouldn't say regardless of whether they're tied to reality. You know, that distinction, is that playing a role here that people are focused? Hey, you're incoherent, you're inconsistent, and they're less <laughs> focused on the correspondence part of it? Or is that too far-fetched? No, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. But um, the... I mean, on the one hand, I would say no, because even on the correspondence theory, Consistency is uh, required because there are no contradictions in reality. A is A, it's not non-A, mm. and that's an axiom. So um, if, you, uh, if you have two, two conclusions you've drawn from evidence, uh, you know, ultimately from reality through perception, if you reach two conclusions um, that are incons logically inconsistent, then mm. You got. You have a problem. You have to resolve it somehow. Um, but it's a worse problem for the coherence theory because uh, coherence is all you've got. And um, so, but I think it. May, this is just a immediate kind of uh, top of my head response. But I think it may be easier for. Um, coherence theorists to deal with issues like these because they can always introduce some additional point that um, obviates the objection and, um, you know, coheres more or less, you know. The coherence theory ultimately is based on there's no basis for anything. Mm. There's no basis in reality for any of your beliefs. The only yeah. standard is are they consistent or not? Yeah. Well, you can invent all kinds of things that are consistent with the other things that you know, mm. <laughs> and um, you know, so the current theory doesn't really have a, I don't think ever developed a um, thoroughly cons you know, rigorous way of saying, okay, you can do this, but you can't do that uh, epistemologically. Mm. 
there's a degree of arbitrariness about it. And, you know, in the correspondence theory, which is a realist theory, that is our, we take yeah. our knowledge to be about reality. Right. And uh, reality has to uh, provide provide us with the evidence and verification of what we believe. You know, we're, we're bound by, a, so to speak, a stricter taskmaster. <laughs> hmm. You know, reality is there. It's, it is what it is, you know. Um, yeah. So, um, I wanted to ask you also, David, you know, um, objectivist audience will know that integrity is one of the, one of the seven objectivist virtues. And to the extent it counsels, you know, unity of thought and action, how does that relate to hypocrisy? I've often wondered whether I was looking for the counters to the objectivist virtues, you know, is the opposite of pride. Humility is the opposite of integrity, hypocrisy. And, but here it seems we're talking, we are somewhat talking about, hey, I found you talking the talk, but not walking the walk. So that yeah. does sound like, but it's also in, inconsistency in argument. So I don't know, do you, do you find in a correspondence that hypocrisy is the opposite of integrity or is there more, is a little more subtle than that maybe? Well, I think the essence of integrity is that you, um, is the alignment between what you believe and what you do or say mm -hmm. outwardly. Yeah. And uh, that violate that alignment can be um, broken in several ways. Hypocrisy is maybe the most common. Another, another uh, counter or another opposite of uh, integrity in that sense is uh, compromise in the sense that Rand often talked about. You're giving oh, yeah. up a principle yeah. by, um, saying well you can buy you can I'll, I'll agree with you that we'll go forward based on only mm. half my principle or whatever or mm. and it that compromise is not always bad sometimes it you know it just it, it's necessary but not on essentials not on mm. principles and that's what we're really getting at here is that mm. consistency um i mean it applies at every level of knowledge and belief but it really starts with consistency in your fundamental outlook on the world. So, you know, people, when, when people are engaged in ad, uh, uh, ad hominem or two quote way accusations, they are raising a relevant standard. Yeah. You should be consistent. And yeah. if you're not consistent at this level, now that that's a fallacy on the part of the accuser, but it, it points to a vulnerability um, in the targets, and, and I think the proper response is a identify what the other person said as a fallacy, but b look more closely at your own set of beliefs. Get get to the underlying principle that um, if if you hold with uh, you know deficit spending in under one regime and um, not and attack it under another. Um, what what is your real thought about deficit spending? I mean, what is the real principle here? Does it or does it not? Um, is it is it or is it not an appropriate function of government finance? Yeah, and that and, and uh, if consistency is, it's almost like something like it's a sufficient, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. I don't know if that's proper, but the the my body my choice example, the vaxxers and the abortion. Now, if yeah. you, if the Vax people said, "Listen, um, 
Uh, government should not mandate what I put in my body, put in or take out. Let's <laughs> let us say. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the abortion, the pro-abortion person says, well, they shouldn't. Now, the if you ran through consistency, you'd have to say it can't. The, the anti-vaxxer would have to say it can't mandate me taking vaccines, but I have to. I have to confess, I'm I'm now pro-choice on reproductive choice, and the other side would have to say, well, no, women have a right to choice, uh, cho- choose on reproductive, and I have to confess they shouldn't mandate vaccines. So, so, but that at least forces them to go to, well, are you for government mandates or not? Instead of right. just uh, fashioning a. And I like your bringing in the compromise, that, that issue of the opposite of integrity. It, it involves hypocrisy, but also compromise, but on essentials, not on, well, non-essentials. And I wonder whether we're also talking here about that whataboutism comes up. It's easy to bring it up on non-essentials. And what we're really counseling is get to the essentials and then make sure you don't make sure you know that's anchored in reality and don't compromise on that. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, but hmm. here's the problem. Yeah. A lot of people don't think in principles. Hmm. They don't get to that level. Uh, every issue is just this concrete issue, rent controls, abortion, uh, foreign policy. You know, they and, you know, they have their views. They can back it up with some evidence if they're, you know, following the news if they're reasonably intelligent but if they don't have an underlying framework what i would we would call a philosophy to navigate by then um they're kind of at 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 sea in terms of consistency and i think the um the inability to think it or the absence of thinking in principles is itself a cultural phenomenon I would connect it and and say it's with pragmatism as a philosophy, which um, you know it's had its uh, philosophical heyday in uh, the early part of the nineteenth century with. Um, uh, so was John that, Dewey, was that uh, James and Dewey, John Dewey and William James? William James, yeah. And, so, uh, so for those who don't know, David, remind people what pragmatism is, because sometimes people think of it as, so that's the practical philosophy. That's a philosophy that says be practical. It doesn't really mean that. But pragmatism with a capital P as a philosophical theory, held that um, uh, one central tenet was um, that the truth or falsity of the statement is is determined by whether it works if you put it into practice. Yeah. So it's not that there's evidence for for against it. And many of the pragmatists, for example, were um, critical of 19th century thinkers who said, look, we have a constitution that says, here's what government can do, here's what it can't do. Those were principles. They said, no, you can't, you can't be accept rigid principles or be doctrinaire or be uh, yeah. uh, ideological about this. And we still hear that kind of stuff today. Yeah. So uh, on top of which, Dewey was the um, had a special interest in education and was the father of the so-called progressive schools, which taught generations of students less about thinking and um, discovering the truth than about acting and acting. He was a collectivist acting in a socially uh, 
you know, harmonious way. So, um, you know, that was a long time ago. Education has gone through many different fads, some of them opposed to Dewey, but there's still, I think, the residue of pragmatism that people don't, don't just don't think in principles like, you know, the government should not be issuing regulations on on business uh, choice business uh, operations unless there is some harm that th- those operations cause. Um, yeah, and the and, and the pragmatist might say, well, uh, okay, I get that, Kelly, but uh, how about in finance? Okay, maybe in oil, but not in finance, and not in finance in this sector. There's so and then again the concrete bound, but also the the inability to see the principle of the thing. If you don't have that, you're going to be more inclined to having inconsistencies. And if, if all sides do it, there's plenty of opportunity for them to point fingers at each other. <laughs> right. You're right. Because the deeper philosophic problem is everyone has been trained in this pragmatism. Trial and error. See, Try it and see what works. If it doesn't work, we don't really conclude anything from it. Try again. I think the poem, uh, postmodernists would call it, everything is radically contingent. No, not, yeah. Yep. Right. It's also yeah. in epistemology. You're talking about, I think, uh, the practice of integration, connecting our knowledge, and not only say call it horizontally, but vertically down to reality. And interestingly, the root, uh, the ethic is the virtue. I should say is integrity. So you got integration as an epistemological standard which would give you principled thinking and acting. Uh, yes. And then this virtue of integrity has the same root, so it's etym- etymological root, so it's also a virtue. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, the the root of uh, both integrity and integration means making whole. Mm. Uh, making whole, yeah. We Good. make whole our, our knowledge by um, uniting it in higher-level abstractions and principles that... Um, uh, so that you know, you know, we're consistent across all, all the sub issues, and it means, uh, as a virtue, it means the um, the wholeness of or uh, between your thoughts and your actions, and um, so it's 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 a real desire. It's a it's a it's a virtue of unity, um, in in a way. Although we're getting into some deep waters here, but just I mean. I, you and I have both been um, out there as advocates, um, political activists for a long time. Yeah. How, how often does it happen? We, you know, we're talking about rent controls. Yeah. And you know, someone is is proposing rent controls, and we say, no, here's why that won't work. It's been established economically many times, and they say, okay, okay, I guess I agree. Uh, what about um, price controls? <laughs> Yeah. On oil. Yeah. Oil. I mean, yeah. gasoline is gone. Skyrocketed. The price is skyrocketed. Can we yeah. can we control that? Well, yeah. do you, do you but, see the connection here with rent controls? Is there any common issue? <laughs> um, yeah, that, so. that, that version, David. So that version, when you look out contemporaneously and they'll mix up two different sectors and not see the connection. But the other common one I hear is, um, well, I can maybe in the 1880s, we, uh, uh yeah. this policy or that policy was oh, laissez-faire was, like, but not anymore. 
So, but but a pragmatist would really be prone to that too, right? The world has changed so much. Yeah. What are you, a Neanderthal? You know, still in the seventeen. So the and 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 that really <laughs> eats away at the principles of the founders, right? It so does. Like, okay, yeah. come on, seventeen seventy. We're not living in a world with the buggies and candles and you know. Um. So that one. Yeah, the pragmatists are, are can chip away at the idea of principles over time, if you will, that are f- fixed and stable versus principles uh, in real time today across sectors, across issues. Um, so that you're you're talking about uh, Dewey and James at least a hundred years ago. Talk about the trailing influence of philosophy. It shows the power of philosophy, doesn't it? It, has this it trailing does. Influence. It does. Although um, I must say, my 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 dissertation advisor at Princeton in the 1970s was a big fan of Dewey and uh, pragmatism. And uh, he was a well-known philosopher. So, I mean, th- yeah, the ideas are still alive. Is that Richard, uh, Richard yeah. Rorty? Richard Rorty, yeah. Richard Rorty, yeah. Yeah, he was famous. Well, I don't know. So, how you, I don't know how you get out of, how did you get out of uh, Princeton without being a pragmatist? Well, I think I know the answer to that, but. Well, um, he liked challenges, and I, I sort of yeah. gave him. <laughs> <laughs> Should we turn uh, Scott? Did, uh, Scott, are you still yes. there? I, I thought you, uh, you sent us earlier some, um, some questions, which are, which were very. David and I thought were very cool. You want to bring up some of them? Sure, uh, absolutely. Uh, and I want to encourage other people to come up as well, as as well as sharing the room. But. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I'm not 100% in agreement with all this. I, I wonder if it's possible you're being too noble. I mean, you know, Rand was quick to call some questions dishonest, even from the audience. She's famous for that, maybe too quickly, according to some. But, I mean, there is such a thing as, as dishonest questions. And well, so, yeah. You- okay, Scott, I'll let you finish. Um I'll just say, uh, you know, when you get those from someone who's not arguing in good faith and Richard, even to what you said about someone you've argued with before and, uh, you know, they're just they're always trying to just get you to concede on their points and, and even using your own principles against you. Yeah, I wonder if you're thinking, Scott, of the, the two uh, p- major public appearances she had on TV with Phil Donahue. This came up twice. Are you thinking of this? The, the questioner would stand up and say, they would say something like, uh, Miss Rand, I uh, read your books when I was a teenager, when I was in college, and then I grew up and matured, and, <laughs> and, her, then her, and I don't believe any of it anymore, something like that. And her head would explode. I mean, she was just going nuts. And, and it, is, it was a kind the- of embedded, an embedded insult. So instead of, does this relate to whataboutism in the sense of the person's not really taking on her philosophy directly? The person is saying this is an immature philosophy that only, you know, untutored kids would follow. Is that what you mean, that kind of thing? And is that part of... No, I mean, that was more of a side point just to say that there are dishonest questions. I heard stories from Fort Hall Forum where she just, like, attacked the questioner, um, you know, oh. and really go after them. But uh, I... I but more, it's it's the idea that, you know, sometimes, in, and, you know, you talked about these quick talking head shows, it's even more prevalent on social media, 
Mm. where you've got these people and, and sometimes they're the same people and they're, you know, coming at you on something and it just, they, they totally are being hypocritical on, uh, you know what they it, it's like they they aren't being principled about it they just yeah. want you to concede on your points yeah so so you're saying there's a you're saying isn't there a more ra legitimate argument for pointing out people's hypocrisy and right. not uh but not that alone right or you're, or you're saying no that's enough in some cases people are just so so brazenly unprincipled about they're flip-flopping that they're not even worth engaging i don't i don't know maybe david I mean, that thought yeah you go ahead i i would i would add here that um you know i've given a lot of thought to issues of toleration and benevolence um <laughs> yes. and i think that, i think they definitely have a, a bearing on the conduct of arguments and any kind of discussion but um, there are people who's, who make it clear, not intentionally always, but make, for whom it's, it's, you are very clear that this person is hostile. Um, they are not even trying to go by reason. And that to me is a conversation stopper. I, I won't talk with them or someone who opens a, um, I mean, there, there are other conditions. There are some people who have. Like I know people who uh, accuse open objectivism and any advocate of it, um, me in particular, um, as engaged in a fraud, stealing the term objectivism and, uh, you know, uh, adulterating it. And someone who starts with an insult, um, that, that's the end of the conversation until they come back and, and can start in a more, um, you know, it, in valid way. I mean, a more... Yeah. Um, open open themselves uh way of of handling it so there are cases where i think the um the proper response to um certain arguments including um a lot of the two quark ways that happen in reality is to say first if possible say first of all that's a fallacy and secondly do you have anything better you're ignoring the issue you're sidelining the issue you mm -hmm. want to talk about the issue or not mm -hmm. And just, you know, don't, don't get defensive. Just um, say, call to explain what the person's doing. And if they don't want to be rational and don't want to be reasonable, walk away. Uh, so, uh -huh. Scott, I think you're absolutely right that there are some points, some people that, um, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm very hesitant to say a question is dishonest. But it's easier to say, because um, I don't know what the person's mind is like, what's going on in the mind, unless I know them really, really well. Mm -hmm. But um, I can tell, you know, we just have, you know, kind of a basic ability to tell when someone is, is hostile or open or neutral or friendly. And, you know, we we had that knowledge starting when we were babies. It's some kind of uh, gift of our uh, uh you know, ape ancestors, uh, primate ancestors. But anyway, um, that's a long way of saying, I, I think you've got a good point and I agree with that up to a point. Okay. Hey, you know. Hi, Jack. Um, Welcome. Hey, thank you. Yeah, sorry, I uh, was on another interview and so I missed the 
beginning part of this, so I'll go back and I'll re-listen to that um, at a later time. But um, I, when I think about hypocrisy and political uh, argumentation, two of two examples come to my mind, and so we wanted to put those out to you and evaluate. Um, you know, what's the proper way to, uh, is, you know, whether or not it's it's proper to point out the hypocrisy and um, in what way would it be most constructive. So one example is uh, politicians who oppose giving poor people the opportunity to send their children to private schools. Um, through the use of vouchers or education savings accounts, but they themselves send their children to private schools. Yeah. So I yeah. Said, that's, that's one example. Yeah, um, that's a good one. It's worth, you know, I, I think it, it does say something about at least that they acknowledge uh, that, let's, let's say in this case, that the, the school is, is, is failing and, and they wouldn't send their own kid. To it, um, and then the other example that comes to mind when I think of hypocrisy, of course, was during the lockdowns and the mandates, and uh, the various people that um, violated their own, you know, mask mandates. And you'd see these pictures of you know politicians, Newsom dining out at the French Laundry, um, but uh, you know, not allowing that to other people, or Nancy Pelosi. Uh, going to a hairdresser during, you know, the, the lockdowns without a mask and, and yet, you know, maintaining these policies for other people. And I would think that in a situation like that, it's, you know, just saying, oh, the, the hypocrisy itself is not quite as interesting. What's interesting is that they actually don't believe <laughs> or it calls into question how how much they actually believe uh, the kind of premises behind the, the the mandates, right? So if this really is so terribly dangerous and, and wearing uh, this cloth over your face is going to make a big difference and save lives, why don't you yourself, you know, I would, if you believe that, you would behave differently. Those are good ones. The the other one you hear sometimes is you'll they'll say. Well, these politicians or leaders who are want for severe gun control and maybe defund the police, but they have well-armed security details, you know, gated, gated protection and stuff like that. What is what does this strike you, David? These are Jag's examples, also examples of uh, what aboutism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when when they are pointed out that yeah. when someone says. Uh, if the issue uh, under discussion is the mandates and uh, a person is defending the mandates and I say, well, what about Nancy Pelosi? She went to a hairdresser without a mask. Yeah. What do you think about that? Um, uh, are you going to come down on her head, too? And then that that the person, you know, I'm 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 not addressing the underlying issue which is, are the mandates proper? And, but there's also the point that, um, because this is a political issue, you know, under the rule of law, politicians are subject to the same laws as citizens. 
one law, everyone is equal before it. They have certain rights, certain job descriptions to do as, as uh, functionaries of government, but that doesn't exempt them from a universal mandate. Uh, so there's an issue here, and I think it's valid to raise the issue. Um, are there, okay, how about these mandates? You, you're, you're, de you're defending these mandates. Um, tell me, what do you think? Are there exceptions to it that certain people uh -huh. should not be governed by that? Uh -huh. And if so, why? E.g., the Speaker of the House at the time. Um, yeah, so increasingly we hear about a two-tiered justice system, or I don't know, maybe three or four-tiered which strikes people as fundamentally unjust. But yet, I mean, the Nancy Pelosi case, when I hear something like that, my first thought, they say a conservative says it. My first thought is, what are you actually saying that Nancy Pelosi should be mandated to not go to the hairdresser? I mean, are you, are you advocating that it be extended to her as well? Why don't you go uh -huh. the other way? The consistent approach would be no one should be mandated. She should be able to go to get the hairdresser, but they don't go that route. It's almost like they're conceding the prevailing view and then, then they're just demanding consistency. So if they had their druthers and you said, good, we'll mandate and arrest Nancy Pelosi, they'd be for it. But that's not their fundamental view. That's the problem I have with these unprincipled approaches. You can't really get out of people what the fundamental position is and a, and a good defense of it, you know? Same thing with the vouchers, the JAG. That's a really good one. Yeah, Obama sends his girls to Sidwell's or whatever it was. And well, what's the issue? That every parent should be able to send their kid to whatever school they want, regardless of income, and um, drop the uh, you know the mandates that they go to public schools. They're all there's a lot of these, aren't there, David? They're all over the place. Yeah, yeah, and that school thing uh, that's been around for a long time. Yeah, um, and it. That one in particular is what makes me want to engage in two Kokoi arguments. It's, <laughs> yeah. Because it's so infuriating. A, a yeah. politician is not willing to sacrifice or put his own kids at danger or risk their right. uh, underdevelopment uh, or failure to reach their real potential. And so insist on they go to good schools. But he's willing to sacrifice this, the students of all of the inner city and the ghettos and the people who have crappy, crappy uh, public schools and um, are are going to be experiencing and the, the exact same things that the politician is worried about for his kids. So that um, it, it's maybe because it involves children and education that it, it really gets my goat. But um, yeah, so no, now David, imagine a Republican or a conservative passing a law saying, OK, here. Going forward, no president uh, should be able to send his kids to a private school. He must send them to the rat-infested uh, local D.C. public school. Well, that would it would be consistent, but <laughs> but it would be wrong. It's just wrong. It's it's uh, for for the point of consistency, they're mandating that everybody be abused. Um, yeah. Well, that. It, in the case of public education, that is uh, all over the place. Uh, mm. They, you know, the the teachers unions and other defenders of public education want to use um, all children 
as means to the ends of the state. That is, you know, the rationale has always been, well, we need an informed republic to make democracy work. Um, but we also need, uh, you know, people in STEM fields to uh, work in the economy. We need all kinds of talents. And um, the public schools are, uh, but they're willing to recruit and forbid parents from going elsewhere, uh, you know, using coercion of the, you know, through the government. And that, um, whether or not that just on its own, we're not, I'm beyond talking about ad hominem arguments here. Um, that just seems to me, you know, especially vicious. But anyway, back to the subject. Um, uh, maybe Scott. Richard, I'll get yeah, back to you. in the I mean, Richard, in the case of my body, my choice. Yeah. I mean, they're using the pro-choice principle, yeah. you yeah. know, to say why they don't want to vax after it's been trumpeted as this universal principle. I mean, are people right. wrong to want a single standard? Exactly. No, I agree with you. Uh, the I remember seeing a bumper sticker years ago from a libertarian, and it said, um, I think it said, I'm pro-choice on everything. I thought that was cute. That was very good. <laughs> very consistent, you know. Why aren't you guys pro-choice on everything? Um, yeah, I mean, I wrote an essay at the time saying, my business, my choice. How about that? Why should I have to close down my business due to uh, lockdowns? So my body, my choice, my business, my choice, my mind, my choice, my kids and their school, my choice. Scott, are you saying, yeah, I think I see what you're saying, Scott. I don't think David and I are saying don't point out inconsistencies. It's rather that ain't enough. That's it. That doesn't go to the issue. Actually, to put a, po a positive spin on this, David, I think we could treat we could treat it as this is a wonderful opportunity since the mistake is so prevalent. It's a wonderful opportunity for principled people to bring principles to bear and to remind people that there's a deeper issue here. You can, you can say, by the way, you're being very inconsistent here. I assume you think consistency is a virtue. Uh, let's try to get there. But isn't the deeper issue here whether parents have a right to send their kids to school, right? You could go to it so quickly and yeah. distinguish yourself as someone who's thinking in principle and isn't just engaged in a I gotcha uh, emotional volley. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, no, that's a great, great point, Richard. Because uh, you know, I think, but part of the approach that we're taking is that um, the whataboutism uh, response to someone's statement is uh, a fallacy, but. It's also, and the proper way to deal with it is to name the fallacy and mm. then go to the deeper issue um, at stake, the one that is that is not being addressed, but should be. Um, but you're, you're making me think uh, that actually, given the prevalence of ad hominem and, mm -hmm. you know, it, it when, when people engage in, in a two quote way argument, their mind is focused on a certain issue. So that's a great opportunity yeah. to say, you know, run with it. Um, it's kind of um, philosophical jujitsu in a sense that you huh. you yeah. take an attack as a means of uh, not not winning an argument per se, but getting to the underlying issue. And yes. Yes. you know, you may convince the person, you may not, but you'll at least be talking about something real.
Yes, and it's what uh, it's what Miss Rand used to call philosophic detection, the ability. And you don't have to be, uh, you know, we don't have to be PhD trained philosophers, although that helps on the logical fallacies. But people, just as the laws of logic, David, aren't maybe even taught anymore. Neither are the fallacies, the common fallacies. If people were just armed with these and be aware of them, they'd be much better in not only in debate, but in just in their own thinking and structuring their own thinking. Right. Um, yeah. The, the, the other, the, I wanted to throw out here for those who see this, because another version of this, although this is an entirely separate uh, debate or discussion, I see all the time is it'll go like this. That's crazy. Or that's crazy talk or that's crazy town or that's nuts or you're insane. The psychology, what was called psychology is very common these days. And people just sneak it into their conversations a lot. That is obviously ad hominem. It's, it's worse. It's like playing armchair psychologist. But um, it's, it's maybe even David Cruder and then just saying, by the way, you're inconsistent or you flip-flopped on this issue. But I, I am finding that all over the place. That is very common now from all sides. The other, the one side just refers to the other as crazy, as if the issue is psychological, not philosophical. Yeah. And it's, and you all, I always think to myself, no, it's not, come on. Yes, some people are psychologically deranged. I get it. Uh, Michael, what's his name? Michael Savage has a book called Liberalism is a Mental Disorder. I mean, he's being, <laughs> he's being funny and he's trying to be funny and cute about it. But that kind of thinking, if it's called that, is is also quite prevalent, and I think very uh, unfortunate that people just go to. I don't have to answer this question. You're nuts, or that's yeah. Nutty. Have you seen that? Have you noticed that? I've noticed that a lot. I haven't noticed it as um, as often as I guess you have, um, but it 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 is an ad an ad hominem, uh, not quite a two quote way. It's just saying. Um, you, you're expressing this idea. It's not worth considering because it's crazy. Yeah. It's so crazy right. end of, end of discussion. I'm attacking right. you as being in, implicitly as being mentally disturbed. And it's, it's also, um, Rand talked about this in, in an essay she called, uh, um, the argument from intimidation. Hmm. That is, yeah. you're putting forward a position which is so disreputable that it disqualifies everything else you might say. So I'm I'm not even going to listen. And, um, you know, some of us have been uh, targets of that kind of argument before. Um, Rand certainly was. And it's, uh, it's, it's, I think it is, in our context we're talking about uh, right now, I would say it's a form of that hominem. I mean, yeah. In this case, I'm not imputing your argument because you're a bad person. Um, I'm imputing your uh, person because you have a bad view, a disreputable view. But it's, you know, yeah, and, pretty similar. And it sometimes it's, it blurs into, well, that's an eccentric or extreme argument. So the whole idea that that's out of the mainstream, therefore it's abnormal, therefore it's crazy so easily dismissing uh the unconventional view as um not worthy of consideration at all she yeah she also wrote an essay called uh on psychologizing which is in voice of reason 
I think it came from the Ayn Rand letter in 1974 or so. So she addresses the issue specifically of people who go at others and uh, psychologize about them instead of dealing with the philosophy and yeah. the fundamental ideas. So more questions? Um, yeah, we want to encourage people from the audience to uh, raise your hand. I still have a few more as well. Um, you know, I'm just kind of going back to this. I mean, don't I have a right to say to someone that I'm talking to, you know, so this principle is important to you, mm. you know, that either the, the president not have an affair or whatever it is, uh, you know, will you also agree to that in, in assessing, you know, candidates of your own party, for example? Sure. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, okay. I mean, I don't think anything we've said is, is um, would be against that. Um, it's, you know, we do, we do think that, uh, to quote Quake, um, instead of being just this complete conversation stopper, is an opportunity to go deeper. And that's one one route of getting deeper. What What is your view about this? Um, you know, you're espousing a view that um, takes this view in general. How, how would you will you accept it as when it applies to this other issue? Right. That's a Scott. I, I want to uh, sometimes uh, this might help the because uh, what you said reminded me of the kind of phenomenon we see today, which is I guess a form of tribalism. I'm in my tribe. Others are in their tribe. I'm in my party. Uh, my party, right or wrong, others in the other party. And there's a kind of a knee-jerk, therefore emotional, right, reaction to something. And the more interesting people I've noticed, intellectuals, are the ones who question their own party. You know, they try to make the Republican Party more liberty-oriented in areas they're not, or people on the Democratic side, Alan Dershowitz and others who are trying to do that. It's a, it's a test of their principles that they're willing to you know, do some kind of internal house cleaning to have their side stick to the principles. But I've always been interested in the idea of partisanship, political parties, the idea of being partial is a form of non-objective uh, approach. The, I mean, the impartial approach, right, is not to see just the parts of something or the piece of something, you know, the tail of the elephant, but not the whole elephant. I think is 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 relevant here too. And back to David's point about pragmatism, pragmatism, uh, you know, eschews the integration, and so it's it's prone to saying, just look at the part, the the partial aspect, the, literally the party aspect, my team versus the other team. It's not focused on one ideas to the truth or validity of ideas, but rather who's espousing them, what what party is espousing them, what group. Special interest group, right? That kind of thing. Uh, I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but I see that as well. And and if you can, in a debate like that, say to people, what is the principle? I don't care whether you're a Republican or Democrat. I don't care whether you're rich or poor. Do you believe in, you know, X? Right. Is, a good, good, is a good approach, I think. Can it still be objective to have made an assessment that one side is a much greater threat than the other, if only by virtue mm. of how many cultural institutions they've taken over in the last generation. Mm. Mm. And then as a result of that, uh, you know, deciding that, yes, I'm still going to be objective. I'm still going to look at what's going on, but I'm not going to nitpick the 
uh, smaller problems of the party that I don't see in that, you know, new religion kind of light? Good question. I'm not sure what you're getting at, Scott, quite. Could you elaborate a bit? I'm just saying that it. I'm still being objective in the sense of making an assessment that one uh, kind of political side is a much greater threat than the other. And as a result, I'm not being a blind partisan, but I'm making a conscious choice to, uh, you know, just still notice the bad things that are happening on that side, but, you know, weigh it in the, the bigger picture within the hierarchy of values. I think it sounds perfectly reasonable. Uh, a good use of, of one's mind. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to take an action of voting and participant, participating in the democratic process of choosing um, the people who are going to be governing you, uh, then you should vote on your your best assessment of who will do the best job and the job that closely, most closely corresponds to your views. And, you know, we, we now have this elaborate uh, political infrastructure of parties. So that shapes a lot in, in how you go about it. But I, why would anyone, um, I mean, coming from, from our point of view, not disagree with it? You should make judgments about um, which ideas you're going to support, which people expressing those ideas you want to support, even if in, a, in the context of an election, it's a real mixed bag. Um, so you're sometimes just choosing the least of the evils, lesser of the evils. You know, Scott, I, I agree with that, David. Scott, I think if I know what you're getting at, you know, say, say objectivists get in a room and they say, what is the greater threat to the, uh, to free society, the Marxist, uh, Democrat left or the, uh, religious right. And, uh, you know, to the extent pro-capitalism argument, pro-liberty arguments have generally been seen as right wing. Um, there is this debate, I know you're involved in it as, uh, you know, should we be purifying the right and criticizing them more because they're in our camp, uh, even though the left and the Marxists may be more uh, threatening, which I think they are, by the way. And so there is there some kind of uh, phenomenon where they're left wing objectivists or something like that, Scott, where they're sympath they're they're giving a pass to much on the left and and are really really harsh to the right and then it might relate also to the schisms within i think david and i are talking about the idea of if you're really principled about this that would actually prevent not prevent that would basically ignore schisms right the the more principled you are i think you wouldn't be involved in these very hair splitting schisms and over and, and exaggerating the differences, especially related to the broader context of, are we losing the free society or not? Is that what you're getting at, Scott, that the kind of hair splitting that goes on and intramural battles, civil wars that are more I violent? Mean, I, all that's involved. I was really just making the point that one can have partisan leanings and yeah. still not necessarily be tribal. Mm. I see. Yeah. So, uh, but we're uh, very pleased to have uh, Professor Stephen Hicks with us. Uh, thank you for joining us. 
Hey, thanks, guys. I'm coming in late, so I hope I'm not repeating something you made earlier, but I'm interested in a phenomenon that's uh, partly psychological and partly you know, cognitive epistemology about uh, 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 this hypocrisy issue. Um, so I notice when I'm observing debates, sometimes participating in debates online, that people are very sensitive to uh, hypocrisies in their outgroup, right? whatever uh, in-group they're part of, they have their religious, political, or whatever uh, adversaries, and they're very sensitive to inconsistencies in the points that are being made by the out-group. Uh, yeah. They notice them, and then they uh, you know, they attack them and then say, well, what about this, right, and so on. But it gets more complicated when you turn to the in-group, because you know, very often there are uh, hypocrisies and inconsistencies in the points that are made by one's in-group. And then uh, there seems to be uh, either an obliviousness to the inconsistency more on the in-group, or if the inconsistency is noted, uh, reluctance to, uh, to call it out and to do anything about it. So there's, there's these two elements. One is cognitively being able to identify the inconsistency or hypocrisy, and then the willingness to do something about it. Mm. Uh, so my question is uh, to you guys, since uh, you know this is your your topic, uh, when we are doing in group, uh, say house cleaning, I think Richard used that word a little earlier. Do you think the greater issue is if there is in whatever groups you identify with uh, inconsistencies or people who are on your team and they are hypocrites? Uh, is the greater difficulty just seeing? the inconsistency, or is the greater difficulty uh, being willing to do something about the inconsistency once you've noticed it? Hmm. That's a great question. David, do you have a thought? Yeah, I think that's, um, uh, Stephen, I want to say yes and no <laughs> to those questions because um, at times, uh, you know, in the objective, I'm, I'm, and let me take the objectivist movement as our um, example to talk about, because, you know, anything we say about tribalism or groups or controversies in general, we should uh, apply to our own in-group um, <laughs> as well, mm. and uh, for, for the sake of consistency. But, um, mm. you know, there is a pattern in objectivism of people being hypersensitive to small differences and being fearful about um, raising yeah. them. Uh, we all know the background of that and um, it's, it's not good. On the other hand, um, you know, it, it, it's very easy for a group to be kind of have a, a big tent outlook. So long as you are, um, have, this, have the same points of reference, the same basic understanding, um, the ideal thing is what I think we had at our old summer seminars, uh, Stephen, you know this uh, from experience, that people got together um, and for a week of intellectual uh, lectures and talks and, you know, conversations all night. And they loved it in part because people had the same basic principles. They all agreed there's a reality that you should pursue your self-interest, that capitalism is good. So we didn't have to debate those arguments. 
uh, we could get down to finer points, and there was a lot of healthy, I think pretty healthy discussion, um, and some good ideas that came out of it. So that's kind of my image of the way things should be. Uh, but I think it's, it is a little harder to be, you know, if you have an in-group with a lot of people knowing each other, uh, with friendships and um, uh, sometimes, you know, business connections or uh, involvement in, you know, discussion groups, organizing discussion groups uh, involved with an organization like the Atlas Society. We have personal relationships as well as uh, and professional relationships. And so we're not, you know, we, we're operating in that context where it there's certainly a willingness or, or a temptation to ignore, um, you know, what we might otherwise have spotted as an inconsistency. Uh, or if we do spot it, an unwillingness to make an issue out of it because there's a friendship involved or a professional relationship. So I don't know. I don't know where the balance is, uh, honestly. Even though I've been part of this movement for, you know, um, forty on forty some years. Hey, Richard, have any thoughts on on this? I do. It's a really good question, Stephen. I I'd interpret it to mean: is it easier or harder to detect hypocrisy within the in group? I love that to express the in group versus the out, and then to do something about it. I I think there's a certain myopia that develops with the in group. Especially if we're in the minority, especially, especially if we're, oh my gosh, we're a minority within a minority within the liberty movement. And um, I have noticed that I would go, okay, the easier side would be, it's easier to detect and do something about an inconsistency in the in-group. If you have a wider frame of reference about, uh, is this so important an issue that it relates to the broader world? Uh, I don't know, an example of this, uh, I'm trying to think of an example of this would be, um, I don't know, suppose there was some wrangling about whether the way to privatize education is just abolish private schools or do vouchers. You know, so the Freedmanites had vouchers and Ayn Rand would criticize that for, well, that's a compromise. That's a halfway measure. You're not getting rid of the public schools. You're just giving people a check to spend on the public schools. I, I would look at it as if you looked at the broader context, of, well, that's better than nothing. It's better than what we have now. You wouldn't have as much infighting, but if you, you were looked at the purity of it, you'd you'd fight internally forever and never get anywhere, which they haven't actually in vouchers. Another example of this, I think, is foreign policy, but maybe the most interesting one is open versus closed, which you debated recently. I know Stephen and David has been involved in this for a while. Notice on that, there's a lot of uh, retrospectives that can be done especially by those who know the players, which we do, right? So you go back and you say, hey, wait a minute, this person X was actually basically advocating open until they changed their views because of this book that came out or this personality clash that occurred. <laughs> that, are, that is so intramural and so inside baseball, <laughs> so to speak. And yet um, we know that that's an example of, well, hey, it's whataboutism, but it's within our own group. Hey, what about when you said, you know, in 1988, it should be open and now you're saying it's closed. That happens a lot. But my, my basic answer is if you have within your in-group a perspective of how do we stand in relationship to the broader culture? Um, do we have an answer to the broader culture? In which case, who cares whether we have hair splitting 
differences about X and Y. We're so much better than the alternative. Um, there's no sense fighting about this. I don't know if that makes sense. But. Yeah. Uh, um, I was going to say uh, the beginning of the Atlas Society was David questioning some inconsistencies. So, uh, mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, the um, I just want to go back to something you said earlier, Richard. The the supply siders they they were asking the Keynesians in the eighties, you know, why they weren't being consistent with their beliefs of of overall government spending. And I mean, it was probably because there was a Republican in the White House. Yeah, yeah, and there were deficits, and yeah. So that when the Keynesians ran deficits under LBJ and JFK, their view was. This stimulates the economy. So, with the, but the way they did it is they spent more than tax revenues. Well, the Republicans finally figured out we're never going to win another election unless we advocate tax cuts. Well, the tax, but without spending cuts. So the the 1980s prescription was you still had deficits, only it was uh, in part due to tax cuts. So the deficits still showed up, and the Keynesians hated the tax cuts. So they tried to ding the Reagan Knights for spewing out deficits and of course that they were inconsistent and the supply siders are right to say that um ultimately that debate was won because people said let's discuss whether deficits are detrimental or not not i gotcha on your inconsistencies you see why a supply, a supply sider could say you can't criticize me keynesians because you've always said deficits are great now we have huge deficits so that should be great. That, that didn't work. All right. Well, what about the issue that, you know, part of woke is the double standard. We talked about, you know, double standards in the justice system. But this idea that, you know, uh, historically marginalized groups, um, you know, basically almost can't be bigoted, depending on how they phrase it. And so that takes away you know if we can't address that type of thing we're just at a a complete disadvantage and unable to to argue for our position well i there's that is an example of something that's very pervasive and has many other examples and that is um kind of polylogic uh the marxists made a thing out of this mm. if you're a bourgeois um, nothing you say can count because you are your ideas are governed by your class membership and you're on the uh, at the wrong end of the stick for that buddy so um, yeah. only proletariat logic is valid and that your Freudians did something like that you protest a Freudian um, thesis and the Freudians come back and say well you just have a uh, uh, the subconscious complex about this issue so you know get wise get go to a therapist and you know now we see that in the work group um i mean it's a standard tech uh, tactic of people who um want to have uh, a kind of <clears throat> un unrefutable position that is unrefutable something they they set up a fence that says you cross this fence you're going to be electrified so um only the only there's only outgoing traffic here we'll tell you what to believe and you know stephen could you know tell us a lot more about this in a lot a lot fuller context but um there are i mean the 
one aspect of the wokeness is a complete double standard by the, at least by the uh, standards of, of universal, you know, claims about human beings because, uh, quote, the victim classes had, can do say things and do things that the oppressor classes are, are not allowed to culturally and now occasionally politically uh, through cancellations and so forth. So, um, yeah, that is, uh, but that whole pattern that I described from Marx to Freud to uh, the some of the postmodern wokeists um, is a, a kind of fancy ad hominem, right? You, your arguments are not worth even considering because of your class class membership. You know, Scott, I've heard it said that uh, the relativists, you know, have no standards. And so someone said, well, at least they have double standards. At least there's two two standards. <laughs> but still, they, I, here's another opportunity, I think, for us to make a difference. It, you, you immediately think when you hear someone say, hey, it's a double standard. What would be the singular standard? What, or as David put it, the universal standard. What would be the objective standard, you know, that all should uh, adhere to? And that is so resisted today, right? What do you mean a singular? You mean a, a, what are you, a monist? You know, there's only one answer, one ideology back to that point, David, right? So pragmatist pushing against that. But it's nice. I, I think it's, I like the fact that people are saying double standards, there's something wrong with double standard. Yeah. And But they still have to go to the root of, okay, what is the singular standard that's defensible, that's true? I, I'm thinking of uh, when the Supreme Court uh, on Dobbs a year ago, overthrew Roe v. Wade. Um, I, met, I remember one of the critiques from the uh, other side was, hey, I thought you guys believed in judicial restraint. I thought you guys yeah. were judicial pacifists. You know, all of a sudden you're active and you're overturning things and overthrowing things. And then, of course, and of course the right said, yeah, but you've been doing that for decades. They, they, here's the whataboutism all over the place. Again, what okay, so what is the singular standard? Is the is this issue to be decided by the Supreme Court or not, by the states or not? Is this an a thing of individual rights? I find the same thing. You can get in debates with libertarians about this. Um, uh, fellow travelers possibly say, what is the singular standard to gauge what a government should do? Protect individual rights. Not every libertarian would say it that way. They would say that's a bit narrow, that's a bit rigid, it's a bit strict. What do you mean by rights? Um, but anyway, it's a good question, Scott, that double, triple, quadruple standards that are out there, ubiquitous. Yeah, and that's just going back to what you said about, you know, when someone brings up brand social security or they just, you know, maybe it's an objectivist that decides he doesn't like libertarians. And so, you know, this could be a, you know, bringing up the social security is often a lefty who's decided they don't like Rand's ideas. So they're just mm. looking for excuses to trash her, mm. or they even go to the private journals. And so, you know, that's the type of thing where if I get the sense someone is coming at it from that angle, they're not looking to like learn about her, that I do want the right to like, at least identify that and see how they react and maybe move forward. If, if they're, they're not that type of person. You remember, David, in our discussions, uh, we talked about it was, I think, Emerson who said uh, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Yeah. Right. So the, and, the, and, 
to the extent the Emersonian uh, spirit is still out there. This is not considered a virtue in a lot of in some people. You're very small-minded, Kelly, Salzman, Rand, for wanting consistency. You need to be yeah. more. You need to be more profound. Would say we'd say an academic, nuanced, subtle. I, I would be in uh, graduate seminars, and the the uh, professor would say, you know, because I would try to essentialize and simplify my assessment of something, John Rawls or something, and the the, the feedback I get is they would say, Salzman, you have to complexify. <laughs> <laughs> They're not. Simplify was simpleton to them. Sim, sim, to simplify or get to the essentials or be consistent yeah. was not. It was not profundity. Profundity was obscurity. Was profundity. <laughs> well, that is a good profound note to uh, end things. Uh, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope uh, everyone did too. Uh, coming up next week, uh, we've got a current events with Stephen Hicks and Richard Salzman. That's going to be Wednesday, July 19th at 5 p.m. Eastern. And then next Thursday, back here on Clubhouse, uh, Richard will be back here with an Ask Me Anything at 6 p.m. Eastern. So looking forward to that. Uh, our Gulch Gulch Summit is coming up uh, in Tennessee. We look forward to seeing everyone there. Thanks again to uh, everyone who uh, joined us, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for hosting. Thank you. Thanks, David. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks, Richard. Take care. Uh, everyone for listening.